So two, two weeks ago, we uh, began to, or to survey the kings of Judah from the time of the, of the nation's division into two kingdoms. Uh, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was, uh, was the first king of Judah, uh, and we find that he failed to live up to the standard of his grandfather, David. And so pagan high places and cultic prostitution was allowed, um, and, and uh, this continued into Rehoboam's uh, son as well. The next kings, uh, Asa and Jehoshaphat, are considered two of the five good kings that would rule Judah. Uh, they tried to remove the, good, or the pagan practices and places, uh, though they could not eradicate it completely. But because of their trust in God, we also witnessed that uh, his protection of the nation against larger armies. Jehoshaphat's son, Jehoram, married Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, you will recall. Uh, this dis, uh, decision uh, reignited Baalism in the south as Jehoram and his son uh, uh, Azahiah, uh, as it says, walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Uh, and you also remember that Athaliah would actually usurp the throne uh, of Judah by murdering all the legitimate heirs, save for one, Joash, who is rescued and raised by Jehoshabeth and her husband, the priest Jeho uh, Jehodiah. The next three kings, Joash, Amaziah, and Uzziah, kind of fit into the same mold uh, uh, with uh, kings with promising starts but faltering finishes. Uzziah, in particular, uh, led Judah through a time of prosperity at the beginning of the 8th century, but pridefully usurped the, the function of a priest. Uh, uh, leading God to punish him with a skin disease. And this the disease confined him to quarantine and, and effectively made his son Jotham, or Jotham uh, the new king. And it's at this point that we arrived at the time of Micah. You'll recall the opening uh, verse of the book informs us that he prophesied during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And the events of the kings from, uh, and the events of these kings uh, form the, the reference points, the backgrounds for Micah's writing and, and the culture in which he's going to speak. Therefore, uh, uh, as last time, uh, we'll survey the, the, the reigns and cultures of these three remaining kings in order to properly understand Micah's uh, immediate context and properly read him today. So we find in uh, the uh, king of Jotham that his reign begins as a co-regency with his father, who was quarantined uh, from the skin disease. And we read in, in 2 Kings 15.34 that he did right in the Lord's sight, just as his father Uzziah did, and which is not a bad example to follow, uh, though it's, it certainly doesn't seem, this seems to be a standard below David. We are, we are updated to the, the kind of the spiritual condition of the nation in the following verse. It says, Yet the high places were not taken away. The people continued sacrificing and burning incense to the high places. We find Jotham uh, rebuilds the gates of the temple, uh, extensively rebuilds the city walls, uh, while also fortifying key locations in Judah. And he successfully repels an advance from the king of the Amorites, or Ammonites, sorry, uh, and force, he actually forces them into paying tribute to, to, to Judah. And in a, in, a commend, or in a commendation worth striving for ourselves, 
2 Kings 27, 6 summarizes, it says, So Jotham strengthened his position because he did not waver in obeying the Lord his God. Now, despite this, the, the author of 2 Kings notes in 1537 that in those days the Lord began sending Aram's uh, King Rezin and, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, against Judah. Now, Judah's response, however, to this invasion, which is the start of the Syrio-Ephraimite war, would come during uh, the next king. So, uh, so with a, a resurgent uh, Assyria, you recall at the beginning of this, uh, the 8th century, uh, about seven, or 800 to 750 BC, uh, Assyria itself was kind of in a weakened state. That's also the time that Jonah was sent uh, to, to Nineveh. But now in the latter half of the century, uh, under T uh, Tiglath-Pileser III, uh, Assyria has reestablished itself in, in, the, in the Levant and forced Israel to pay the northern kingdom forced Israel to pay, uh, become a vassal state in 738 BC. And this didn't sit well with, with Israel, um, who began to, to plan with, with Aram, or, or modern-day Syria, to overthrow uh, Assyria. <laughs> Get those confused there. I'll stick with Aram and Assyria. Well, uh, when Judah, and they wanted Judah to, to come along with this alliance in, in overthrowing uh, Assyria's control in the region, but uh, Jotham and later uh, Jotham refused to to take take uh, part in this, and and, Aram, or, and and King Ahaz wasn't too keen to join them. But uh, when Judah refused to to join this Syrio-Ephraimite alliance, this is what caused them to advance on the southern kingdom in order to install a more compliant king. And so uh, the Syrio the Syrio-Ephraimite war uh, begins around 735-734. And so Ahaz was the son of Jotham, and his reign is summarized in 2 uh, Kings 16 as one that uh, did not do right, or did not do what is right in the sight of the Lord his God, like his ancestor David. But again, we read, but walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. A description that, 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 can, that, that first finds itself uh, emerging after Athaliah, just to give you an idea of, of, of the kind of the connection that still prevail, or, uh, prevails from there, from that point. And so further revealing the, the, the spiritual condition of both the king and country, uh, the same passage continues. It says, He even sacrificed his son in the fire, imitating the detestable practices of the nations of the, uh, the Lord had dispossessed before the Israelites. He sacrificed and burned incenses on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. We'll find, I think, a significant portion of Micah's ministry uh, will be to, to, or is to, to address this uh, thoroughly pagan and spiritually depraved culture led by a child-sacrificing king. Now, Micah wasn't alone at this time. Uh, God has also appointed Isaiah to a prophetic role around this time, around 742. So as, as, as Israel and, and, and Aram advance uh, against Ahaz, we read in Isaiah 7 uh, that God had sent uh, Isaiah to the king, to, to the king of Judah, to assure him that these invaders, these invaders, and he characterizes these invaders as two smoldering sticks, just to kind of give you a sense of, of how easily brushed away these two, uh, two countries would be to God. Um, but the, Isaiah tells the king... Um, 
that these two smoldering sticks will not have uh, uh, success against Judah on the condition, or, uh, but, but Ahaz is warned in 7.9 that if you do not stand firm in your faith, then you will not stand at all. And so God even offers to give uh, Ahaz a sign to, to assure him of success. But Ahaz, uh, in, in a display of false piety, declines God's offer, claiming he will, he will not test the Lord. And uh, God responds uh, by providing his own sign. And it's actually in this context uh, of, of Ahaz's arrogance and the start of the Syrio-Ephraimite war, that we find the, the famous verse 714. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. Now, uh, to, to pursue a, a tangent for a moment, the NET translates uh, the same verse as, uh, for this reason, the sovereign master himself will give you a confirming sign. Look, this young woman is about to conceive and will give birth to a son. You, young woman, will name him Emmanuel. Now, there, there's some debate over how to translate that, that Hebrew word uh, uh, Alma. Now, in, in isolation, the, the word is the feminine noun to its masculine counterpart, Alem, which is a young man. And so Alma would refer to a young woman. The question at this point then becomes whether or not in communicating the, the, the age of the woman, whether or not this includes a reference or implies a reference to uh, the sexual experience or the lack thereof of the young woman. And that would be where uh, some translations would, get, would, would use virgin. Now, when Isaiah was translated into Greek as part of the Septuagint uh, around the, the first and second century BC, so before Christ, um, the translation uh, uses a specifically uh, Greek term, or a Greek term that specifically refers to uh, a virgin woman. Whereas the, uh, the Hebrew is a little bit more ambiguous to that, to that fact. But the, the, the Greek is, is, is specific as referring to a virgin woman. And it's this translation uh, that's actually used uh, or quoted from by Matthew and Luke when they use the same verse in, reply, in referring to Christ's birth. And so, uh, regardless of how Isaiah was actually using the term, the New Testament authors are clearly referring to, to Mary's virginity in, in using the Septuagint uh, translation and applying this verse prophetically to Christ's birth, or this verse to, to Christ's birth. Now, returning back to Isaiah uh, and his immediate context, if you continue to read from verse 14, you, you discover that this, this uh, sign of this child was not a, a promise of salvation, but in fact of Judah's demise. It says by the time that this, this child reaches uh, an age of moral maturity, when he's able to discern right and wrong, uh, that will be the time, or it will be by that time that Assyria has conquered Israel and Judah themselves are feeling the impact of Assyria's, presen Assyria's presence in the region. And so in the next chapter, in chapter 8, you actually read that Isaiah fathers a son uh, with a prophetess, uh, which is in fact the, the promised child of, of 714 to Ahaz, though later uh, New Testament writers will see this verse as a prophecy of the Messiah's birth, 
All right, so returning to uh, the Syro-Ephraimite War, uh, Ahaz uh, refused, or, um, so after losing uh, 100,000 fighting men in battle and 200,000 uh, Juda Judahites um, are taken captive, Ahaz, instead of standing firm in the faith, uh, actually turns to the Assyrian king Tiglath-Pileser for help. And the Assyrian king agrees to, to help Judah out, uh, but it comes at the cost of their sovereignty. Uh, they, uh, Judah will become a, a tribute-paying vassal state to Assyria. And save for, save for a brief time uh, during the Maccabean revolt in the, uh, in the middle of the 2nd century BC, um, Judah will not exist as a sovereign nation again until 70 years ago from our time. Uh, when the state of Israel was reestablished in 1948. So instead of, a, of an exemplary nation looked upon by the world, by the, the world's nations, uh, Israel is, as a result of Ahaz's decision, relegated to the control and service of foreign kings for centuries to come. Now, following the death of Ahaz, uh, his son Hezekiah inherits the throne uh, of uh, an apostate, idolatrous, child-sacrificing vassal state now, uh, around 715. And what happens in, in the first two years of, of Hezekiah's reign is nothing short of a revival. To begin, uh, and if you want to read it, it starts in uh, 2 Chronicles 29. And if, if you need an encouragement, uh, 29 and 30, uh, even into 31, uh, are, are worth the read. We find Hezekiah reopens the temple, cleanses it, uh, and reconsecrates the, the priests and the Levites and reestablishes a proper worship and sacrifices in line with the Mosaic law. Hezekiah then proceeds to send messengers calling all Israelites uh, in all tribes from, from Beersheba to Dan, uh, a reference to, to the, 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 the entire region of the Promised Land. And he says, to re, uh, and he, he calls everyone to return to the Lord, he says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, and begin and gather, in, and he calls them to gather in Jeru Jerusalem in order to, to uh, uh, celebrate the first Passover in years. Uh, you'll recall this is happening in 715, so we're seven years uh, after uh, Syria has destroyed the northern kingdom, and really Hezekiah is, is inviting the, the, the remnants, uh, the, the remaining Israelites back to Jerusalem. And so despite their past sins and judgments, uh, Hezekiah reminds them that the Lord your God is merciful. He will not turn his face away from you if you return to him. And so we find uh, a large gathering meet in Jerusalem for Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Thousands of animals um, are offered up as sacrifices of thanksgiving as people are praise and, and rejoice before God. Uh, 2 Chronicles uh, 30, uh, 30, 22 tells us that they ate at the appointed festival for seven days, sacrificing fellowship offerings and giving thanks to the Lord their God of their ancestors. So once again, we, we see this kind of throwback uh, to, to uh, the, their origins. But uh, I love the next verse because it says seven days were not, were not enough. Verse 23, it says the whole congregation uh, decided to observe seven more days. So they observed seven days with joy. Just give you an idea of, 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 the, of the, the environment, the culture that's going on, this spontaneous uh, decision for, for another week of celebrating. And so we find 
in verse 26, this, this whole time uh, summarized this way. There was such great rejoicing in Jerusalem, for nothing like this was known since the days of Solomon, son of David, the king of Israel. The revival continued as, as the people returned back to their cities uh, uh, and destroyed their high places and pagan altars throughout the land. Now, politically, uh, Hezekiah was also preparing to rebel against the Assyrian overlords uh, that came in during Ahaz's time. Now, Assyria was facing persistent uprisings to their, to their uh, east uh, and to their north. In the east, it was, it was the beginning stages of the Babylonians. Uh, as well, uh, the Egyptians were starting to show signs of ambition again. And so with, Babylon, or with uh, Assyria seemingly distracted with all these other places, uh, the states in the Levant um, decided that this was an opportunity to, to uh, perhaps gain back some independence. And so Hezekiah fortified, improved, or extended the walls and towers around Jerusalem. However, the, the Assyrian response in the final years of the 8th century BC um, seemingly dispelled any hope of freedom. We read about Assyria and uh, King Sennacherib. Uh, uh, history tells us he traveled down the Mediterranean coastline, uh, putting down uh, uprisings in, the, in Phoenicia and Philistine, and installed uh, more um, uh, compliant monarchs in those regions. And it's at that point that he moves uh, west into Judah. And he ends up destroying uh, the countryside. 46 towns and cities in the southern kingdom um, are, are destroyed, many of whom are actually mentioned in Micah's opening chapter. And then finally, around 701, uh, Sennacherib and his army begin to lay siege against Israel, or against Jerusalem, the capital. Seemingly the, the last city left uh, in the region. And so with Sennacherib's army surrounding the city, we have, uh, we have lar large, large tracts of uh, his spokesmen taunting uh, the, the people of Jerusalem and their God. Uh, Hezekiah um, decides to do what his father failed to do, and that is listen to the prophet Isaiah and remain uh, firm in the faith. And so we read in, in, uh, in 2 Chronicles, uh, and in uh, 2 Kings 16, I think it was, um, that God miraculously uh, delivered uh, uh, Jerusalem, killing 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night, uh, forcing the army uh, back into, uh, to retreat back to Nineveh. Uh, and a bit of an ironic twist, it's Sennacherib who would be killed shortly after returning back to, to Nineveh by two of his sons, while he was in the temple of his God. So sometime later, um, we read that uh, Hezekiah becomes seriously ill and was actually told to prepare for death, to prepare to die. Uh, but in response to Hezekiah's prayer, God actually grants Hezekiah 15 more years. Now, the, the, the request itself for healing uh, doesn't seem to be inherently wrong, but 2 Chronicles 32.25 tells us that, quote, because his heart was proud, Hezekiah didn't respond accordingly or according to the benefit that had come to him. And it seems the, the, the most egregious example of his pride comes when Hezekiah uh, shows off the nation's treasures to, to an envoy from Babylon that had come to see the, the king after his sickness. And for this folly, um, Isaiah prophesies that the days are coming when everything in your palace 
and all your father and all that your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left. Uh, Micah himself will, will deliver a, uh, the same prophecy. Now it, it, it should be or should be noted that this is a remarkable prediction, given that that uh, Babylon is 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 far from a regional or world power at this time, um, and that this would actually not come to fruition for another hundred years or so. Now, even with this this stumble, with with this pride, uh, the author of Kings describes uh, Hezekiah's reign this way. It says Hezekiah relied on the Lord God of Israel. Not one of the kings of Judah was like him, either before him or after him. He remained faithful to the Lord and did not turn from following him, but kept the commands the Lord had, had commanded Moses. The Lord was with him, and, and, whenever he, or, and wherever he went, he prospered. And so Hezekiah remained faithful from, from the joyous revival to the end of his days, refusing to bend the knee to another god. Now, uh, Micah's ministry spans the reign of these three kings, uh, of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And so this gives us uh, a rough timeline of about 25 to 50 years of service for, for Micah, uh, beginning as early as 750 B.C., depending on how you date Jotham, to 686 uh, in, the, in the end of uh, Hezekiah. And this is roughly the same time as, as, as Isaiah. So they, they, they are very much contemporaries with one another. And now the, the, the variety of kings and cultures, uh, the multiple invasions during this time as we just went through, uh, makes it difficult to, to pinpoint uh, maybe the specific point, uh, references or specific events uh, that Micah is referring to during this time. And so this opens the, the possibility for, for a number of different interpretations. Um, of, of, of Micah, and we'll, we'll consider those possibilities as we go through the book, but I'd like to offer two considerations that would date most of his writing, uh, I would say, to the first half of, of Ahaz's reign. Uh, first is that Micah predicts the, 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 the future destruction of Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, and so such writing would have to occur prior to 722. The second indictment, uh, or, the, or secondly, uh, the indictments against the rulers and leaders of Jerusalem uh, seem to be more descriptive or more aptly applied to what would be occurring during the reign of Ahaz. To give you an example, chapter 3 of Micah uh, tells us this, Then I said, Now listen, leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, aren't you supposed to know what is just? You hate, you hate good and love evil. You tear off people's skin and strip their flesh from, from their bones. You eat the flesh of my people after you strip their skin from them and break their bones. You chop them up like flesh for the cooking pot, like meat in a cauldron. Then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because of the crimes they have committed. Now, <laughs> this passage, uh, as you can see, gives you an idea of, of Micah's bluntness. Uh, uh, as well, as it's hard to resolve that description with what we see or what we just went through with Micah's or with Hezekiah's time as king. Now that said, and just to kind of give you a preview of some of the difficulty in interpreting Micah, the prophet Jeremiah, about 100 years after Micah, actually quotes the final verse of this cha same chapter. Um, it's up there on the screen. And it's actually a prediction of Jeremiah's, or of Jerusalem's collapse. 
and he attributes this prediction as taking place during the reign of Hezekiah. Um, so we'll wrestle with that issue in a few weeks, but just to give you an idea uh, and kind of uh, start, start some gears turning, I'll throw or leave that there, just to give you an idea of what we'll be tackling. Now, little is known of the man uh, whose name means who is like Yahweh or who is like God. Um, the indictments that we find in Micah uh, indicate that, uh, the indictments against Jerusalem, excuse me, uh, indicate that, that Micah likely prophesied from Judah's capital. The opening uh, verse of his book tells us that Micah uh, is a Moreshite uh, from the town of uh, Moreshath Gath, which is about 40 kilometers southwest of Jerusalem. And it's located along a ma major uh, thoroughfare from Jerusalem to Egypt that would have been readily used uh, by traders and armies. And so um, Micah's reference to several uh, local towns in that region uh, reveals his knowledge of that area, uh, a region that would have been vulnerable to attacks both by the Philistines and that was leveled by the Assyrian army at the close of the 8th century. Additionally, the, the longevity of uh, his prophetic ministry suggests that the Micah was, was called um, into, into the ministry perhaps in his 20s or in his 30s. His apparent knowledge of dishonest businessmen and the depraved leaders uh, opened the possibility that Micah himself was also a businessman of some nature, perhaps even an elder uh, in his hometown, which, uh, or who would have interacted with government officials. And so this would argue for, for perhaps an older age. Now, uh, like Amos, uh, Micah calls out the oppression and mistreatment uh, brought on by the wealthy and the powerful and, he, and, and the, the uh, growing sense of distrust amongst fellow Israelites. And in so doing, he also reveals his knowledge of the Mosaic law uh, and calls them back to their original mandate. Now, Judah, in failing to do so, in failing to, to respond to Micah's call, uh, Micah is one of the first prophets to foresee the, the collapse of Jerusalem. Before, I, uh, before Isaiah does. And this really ends up being a kind of a, a, a standout feature, a unique feature of Micah's ministry. That is, his uh, remarkable uh, uh, and specific foresight of future events. So not only do we find him uh, being one of the first to prophesy Jerusalem's uh, future downfall, but he also predicts Israel's exile into Babylon. Both, both these events are about 100 years in the future from Micah. But along with uh, these indictments and visions of judgment, uh, Micah, like the prophets before and after him, also provides images of restoration. And he actually uh, foresees a time and predicts the, the time when Israel will return back, a remnant will return back to, to Jerusalem. And in one of the more specific prophecies, uh, we see him uh, foretell of a future of a ruler that will emerge from Bethlehem. A ruler whose origin, it says, is from an antiquity, from ancient times. So now with, with this background in place and Micah uh, firmly set in his historical context, next week uh, we will finally turn to chapter 1. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, your control of history. Uh, Lord, we... We thank you for uh, the faithful examples of, of Hezekiah and, and Jotham, uh, men who did not bow the knee to uh, the pagan idols around them, pagan gods, who did stand firm in the faith. 
Uh, Lord, uh, I, I pray that uh, as, 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 as cultures around us, as, as ideas uh, push in against us even today in this church as Christians, Lord, that we would uh, stand firm in the faith, that we would not fall um, uh, before uh, the, the approaching armies uh, and, 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 and ideas that would threaten to, to sway us away from, from the truth, from the true God. I pray that we would indeed hold firm. In Jesus' name, amen.